Anyway, um, continuing on and finishing today our series on prophecy, I have much more that I really want to say and, and talk about with, in regards to prophecy, and I can't do it all today. But the reason why I'm stopping this today is it occurs to me that the next stage of this is really something that's probably better handled in a small group. And uh, so that probably is something that will happen after the summer. Uh, we'll put together a small group for those people who want to kind of go further and deeper in spiritual gifts in general, prophecy in specific. There's actually a conference that gets held every year called Convergence Con- Conference. And I'm, gonna, I'm trying to talk my wife into going. Uh, she doesn't like to get on airplanes, but it's in Oklahoma City. Uh, there's like two groups. I've talked about before. There's two groups. You've got the secessionists who don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit today. Uh, or that's not the way they put it, but clearly that's what they mean. And then the other side is the Pentecostal charismatics. And those people tend to get weird. You know, if you've ever been to those services, they get a little bit out there. So there's this kind of subgroups that form. And there's this kind of subgroup of the Pentecostals. They call themselves cautious charismatics. And I'd say that's probably where we fall into this. And the cautious charismatics are the one that holds the convergence conference. It's kind of a who's who's list. Francis Chen, if those of you guys know him, uh, Jack Deere, a um, couple of Matthew, um, I can't remember his last name now, Perry, no, that's a different guy. Anyway, so there, there's a Matthew, Ch- Matt, Matt Chandler, that's it. I always, because Matt, never mind, it's a friend's thing. But anyway, so, um, so they, they hold it, uh, and uh, last year they actually talked about prophecy. This, this year they're talking about the prophetic, I mean the, the miraculous gift of healing and how to start a healing ministry in your church. So I'd like to kind of go there. So we'll see. Um, but anyway, so in, in, in line of all that, you know, there's this idea of how do we hear God's voice? Because prophecy really is just an extension of hearing God's voice. It kind of starts the same. You hear God's voice, and the only difference between prophecy and revelation is revelation is for you. Prophecy is for you to speak on to somebody else. And so, uh, you know, this idea of hearing God's voice is, is the, the, the centerpiece of all this. And people have put together lists of these things, as you can imagine, and there are all kind of lists floating around, and I'm going to give you our list. And this is uh, the Spirit Chapel list of the ways that I believe God speaks to you that I can teach about. I am not going to limit God, you know. God spoke through a jackass, and I'm not talking about last week when I preached, although I could, but uh, I'm actually speaking of a literal donkey uh, jackass in the Old Testament. So he can speak any way he wants. God, God will not be limited. Burning bushes, nothing limits him. I'm simply going to say that from a biblical perspective, these are things that I can back up with Scripture, where I say, this happened in the Scripture here. And so, therefore, we can, we can be assured that God can still speak through that. And the number one is Scripture itself. And we've talked about this before. Scripture is the main way God speaks to me and speaks to everybody. And Scripture is more than just, um, you know, the Bible that I can look up like a Google reference. That's not the idea behind it. And I've talked about this before, and if anybody's interested, I can point you to it. I did a whole sermon on it. I believe in something called a spirit-led Bible study. I'm also really cool with structured Bible studies, like those of you who go through the Bible in a year, or, you know, you're doing some kind of a study guide, and you're going through the book of Ephesians. That's great, but I think you need to at least occasionally uh, have a moment when it's just you lead, let the Spirit lead you through the Scriptures to the Scripture it wants to take you to. Like I said, I did a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to talk about that today. But I really believe that helps the Spirit guide you to the Scripture that's meaningful to you in your life. Not necessarily the question you're asking, but the answer you need. Right? And that's something I think that we have to understand because we often will miss God's answers because we're too focused on our questions. You know, I have these questions for God, and I want this question to answer, and I come before God praying. And you can do it. I mean, feel free. People do it. You see psalmists do it. You see the apostles do it. They ask for something. 
But a lot of time, God like, hears your question, totally ignores it, and gives you an answer that doesn't even seem to make sense. But if you'll just listen to him, you'll find out that actually everything comes back to that point. Um, I've talked about this before, uh, but when Victoria and I, and we were arguing about dates last night, because she always does that with me, um, but going back several years, let's say, uh, way before Spirit Chapel, back actually all the way back to when we were in Virginia, still living in Virginia, our marriage was kind of rocky. I mean, I say rocky, we weren't fighting all the time, that was the problem. We weren't fighting at all, because we knew what not to talk about, or else we're going to fight, right? So we were living together separately, and... Um, I've been through a divorce, she's been through a divorce, so we could both feel this thing heading that way. You know, someday, you know, we're just not gonna wanna live together anymore and we'll just separate. And uh, we felt it coming, I was a little bit discouraged by it. And I would, you know, I wasn't really, I got among us very righteous in those days, I believed, but I don't know, I went to church once a week and that was about it. And so um, I pray about it and I'd also pray about every other thing that I had in my life. You know, that was part of my problems. I had a list of problems I wanted God to solve. And so I really didn't pray deeply about it. But if I had, uh, when God finally stepped in and gave me an answer, it wouldn't have been that. You know, God, I, I need to have my marriage fixed. And what God really stepped in our lives and done, and I've talked to this before, is he, and this is really remarkable considering where we both were spiritually at the time, he convinced us individually and then corporately that we need to start tithing. What difference does that make? You know, oh, that's cool, God, that you want money. But, you know, I've got a problem here with my, with my marriage. Could you, could you help me with that? Uh, but, you know, Jesus says that where your money goes, your heart follows. Not the other way around. Uh, we kind of we switch that verse around. But, uh, you know, we give to where our heart is. No, no. He says where you put your money, your heart follows. And what happened when we did that was we both turned our attention to God. Because, you see, when I'm praying for God to fix my marriage, you know what the real prayer is? God, if you could somehow fix my wife, my marriage would be great. Right? Meanwhile, she's praying a very similar prayer. If you could somehow fix that husband of mine, my marriage would be great. And so what we're actually doing is we're praying selfish prayers. But when we both turn our attention to God and we're both praying to God, he can take that selfishness out of the equation. And since we both report to the same God, please don't turn that off. Victor, please, please, please. We're dying here. We're dying. Thank you. You can all hear me, right? Everybody can hear me? Yeah. I guess if you can't hear me, you wouldn't answer that question, right? But anyway, but when, when we both turned our attention to God, then he could actually deal with us. And that was kind of the real problem we had. The real problem wasn't what I thought it was. We had to turn our attention to God. So he'll do that. He'll do that with scriptures. He'll give you a scripture that doesn't seem to make sense to you, but you know it came from him. Stick with it because that scripture is telling you something more important than what you asked him. His ways higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. Okay, some scriptures on this one. All scripture is God-breathed. I like that translation the best. This is NIV uh, because that's actually how it translates. Some scriptures, will, some translations will say inspired, but this literally means breath of God. All scriptures are God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. He is giving you scripture to get you ready to do the work he needs you to do. And by the way, whenever you're asking God's will, that's it. He has a purpose for you on earth and he wants you to get to it. And he's going to give you scripture to help you with that. He, you, can, you can be sure of that. In fact, he even tells his disciples, not everybody gets this. When Jesus is walking around, says, I'm giving stuff out to people and they're not getting it. Blessed are you because you do. His followers, he explains things to. And then when you get it, he gives you more. And if you don't get it, he takes it away. That's what he says. He says, Jesus says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. God's going to explain everything to you. To them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he will have abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Again, like I said last week, Jesus was not a communist. Right? This is like 
opposite of communism. But he's saying, I'm going to give you mysteries, I'm going to give you answers, and when you take it and use it, I'll give you more. If you don't take it and use it, in his mercy, he'll take that away too, so you won't be liable for it. But we can turn to the scriptures for that. And finally, we also see this in Psalm. We've seen this before. I have to quote this one a lot. Your word is the lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You want to know how to walk? Use the scriptures. Later, other places actually above that, the Psalms says this, give me understanding that I might observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. This idea that he gave us the scripture in order to guide us and take us through. In Hebrews, last one on this subject, when God made his promise, he gave his word. Now that means both, right? That means both his written word and he gave his word like we would say, I give you my word, I'm going to keep this, right? That's both of those things. He gave you his word, and he did this so we'd have good reason not to give up. Instead, we have run to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope is set before us in God's promise. So God made his promise and gave his word. Those two things cannot change. God cannot lie. Those two things, his promise, his word, can never change because God cannot lie. So number one, by far and away, if I got to gather them all up and say all these ways God speaks to you, 80% of them is going to be through scripture, which means if you're not daily in the word, guess what? He's not talking to you. It's like you have a cell phone and it's not on. And you're wondering why you don't ever hear from God, right? He's, I got my phone. Yeah, but it's not on. So you need to be in the word daily in order for him to do that. Number two, and believe it or not, this still happens, an audible voice. Now me personally, I've never had that experience. Uh, I know people who, who have. They've talked about an audible voice. They literally heard a voice of God telling them. Usually it's a shout, like no. You know, it's like they're getting ready to do something and hear God shout. Usually, I don't know. It's never happened to me. I don't want it to happen to me. I think it would scare me to death. My wife seems to like to walk around and scare me. I don't know why. Um, she says she doesn't do it deliberately, but I don't know. I'll be sitting there, especially if she waits to put my headset in, you know, and I'm moaning a lot or something. She'll come up and touch my arm. Oh, my God. So I really don't know that I want God speaking to me suddenly out of nowhere. I don't know if I could live through that. You know, graces have weak hearts anyway. Don't necessarily think I want that. But some people do hear it. And, of course, we see this in, in Exodus. Moses famously, you know, he speaks, uh, God calls him through a burning bush and you know, speaks to him audibly. We see that in Exodus. Uh, we also see it in Deuteronomy. When Moses is telling the story of after he brings down the Ten Commandments, he says, look, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly, right there on the mountain. I came down and you heard God say this. And he wrote them up and says, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, God knows drama, right? All the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. So the, the, the tribes and the, the elders of it. And they said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We have heard his voice from the fire. And we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks to them. And so I guess maybe I shouldn't be afraid of it. I'd probably live through it. But it is a little bit scary to think that God could literally speak. You know, he, he spoke in a loud voice. Amazingly, by the way, they go from here and a couple chapters later are making false idols. So, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, and then we see in the book of John, uh, uh, mm, my fingers, fat fingers here. Here we go. In the book of John, Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes out of heaven. He said, I have glorified it. I'll glorify it again. And the crowd that was there, watch this. Some heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken. So that's the other thing interesting about God's voice. The whole crowd heard it. And some people said, no, I just heard thunder. And some said, no, I heard a voice. It was like angels speaking. Right? So God can and does sometimes speak in an audible voice. But he also speaks in something that we call the inner voice. And this is my, other than scriptures, my, my most common way of hearing from the Lord. This inner voice. 
And the best way I could describe this is, you know, you pray sometimes silently, right? And you, you know, we can pray to God silently because he can hear our thoughts and he knows our hearts. So we're allowed to pray to him silently. I recommend you don't unless you have to. It's better to pray out loud. But if we pray in our minds, right, then God can also speak to us in the same way. You know, if that's the way we're praying to him, that's the way he can answer us. And so that's what it is. And I've had this happen on more than one occasion. It's, uh, it's a very interesting experience when it happens because I'll be praying and all of a sudden I can, I just know there's thoughts there that aren't mine. And I don't know how to put this, but like if you look at the bulbs around us right now, see the kind of that yellow tint to them? This doesn't. This is like white. You know, it's like my thoughts have this like yellow tinge to them. And when God pops in, it's like this white. And it's like, I know that's not me. And it's almost always 180 degrees from where I was. Like I was praying for this and, the, you know, oh, wow. Okay, that wasn't me. I would never come up with that idea. And so God does it. Uh, so we see some hints of this. I can't really point to a scripture that talks about it as an inner voice. But we kind of see it in the book of Acts a couple of times. Uh, the disciples come and they stay with him and Paul's going to go on Jerusalem and they believe he's going to be murdered there. And so through the spirit, they urged him not to go. In other words, they're in the spirit. They have this strong sense, the spirit revealing to him, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He goes anyway, but there, we see that. And also in Acts, we see Paul, after, this is uh, Luke writing, after these things have been accomplished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Macedonia and then he heads on to Rome, right? So, in this case, Paul resolves in the spirit. What's that? Well, that's probably that he has some kind of an inner revelation because he's this guy writing us is Luke. He's his travel partner. He didn't hear a voice. He, Paul didn't go off and you know pray and fast or anything. It's just Paul said, I have this resolution in my spirit that I need to go do this. So God was speaking to him internally in order to make that happen. So this inner voice is another thing. Number four, number four, and I'm kind of going through these quickly, I know, but I have a very long thing at the end, so I got to make room for it. We went an hour last night. I want to get you out of here before that. So um, number four, dreams and visions. I put them together because uh, they're put together in the book of Joel, and then again in the book of Acts, we see this. Uh, it says, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. We're in the last days. Says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, shall dream dreams. So this is prophesied dreams and visions. This to me, and I really want to make this distinction, is not imagery. This is kind of taught that God will give you an image of something. And then you have to figure out what it is. If God is revealing something to you, he doesn't need you to figure out what it is. God will not give you something that he also doesn't give the interpretation. The only two ways you can get an interpretation is God gives it to you, that's called revelation, or he gives it to someone you're with. But God never, ever, ever gives you a puzzle to unwrap. You know, here's a crossword puzzle. If you can figure it out, you will have the answer, right? It's, it's 13 down. You know, it's like, no. He actually gives you the revelation and he gives you the interpretation. Now, we can miss, mess that up a little bit sometimes. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he never gives you mysteries and puzzles. He said to others, I'm going to give mysteries. But to you, I'm going to explain it. And so if God is giving you a prophetic word or he's, or he's giving you a revelation, he give it to you for a purpose, you're not going to have to go, oh, what is this? Let me think. Because if you're trying to figure it out, you're doing it in your mind. And God doesn't need your mind to translate his revelation. In fact, your mind can't translate his revelation. So we, we see this consistently. When, when, uh, when Daniel was brought before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is getting ready to kill everybody because they're all frauds. All the wise men are frauds. 
and, and that includes Daniel and his guys. And Daniel comes and says, can, can we have a shot at this? Because you didn't even brought this to us. And, and he was smart. Nebuchadnezzar was smart. He says, I'll tell you what I've got to do. I had a dream. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is because I know you'll come up with an interpretation for it. I want you to tell me what the dream is. And then I want you to tell me the interpretation. And that's how I'll know that you're telling me the truth. And what does Daniel say? Who gives dreams? God. I don't have the interpretation. Can't do it. But I know the guy who does. And he goes back. He asks for time. He's, he's granted. He goes back and he tells his guys, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to pray that God reveals this to me. And so he goes to sleep and like his buddies pray over him. I, mean, I, I don't know how he did it. Because if he wakes up in the morning, you understand, and he doesn't have the interpretation, it's choppy chop. I mean, it's over. I couldn't sleep like that. Dan just goes and goes to sleep. He's a cool guy. Joseph, same thing. You know, when, when they come and, and uh, they pull him out of prison to go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's had this dream. Now, he told him what it was, but no one could explain it. And what does he say? Who gives dreams? God gives dreams. Tell me, and I'll give the interpretation, because God will give it to me. It's not that he was wise enough to know how to interpret dreams. He was wise enough to know the one who does interpret dreams. So anyway, just saying dreams and visions are not just imagery that you figure out on your own. Dreams and visions are something that God's given to you for a purpose and he's going to lead you into the interpretation. Count on it. If he, if he doesn't, it didn't come from God. Number five, this freaks people out, angelic messengers. Another one I don't necessarily want God to do. In the Old Testament, I mean, you know, people wet their robes when they see, you know, angels show up. They're like scary. In the New Testament, in the, in the, in the Gospels, it's the same way. But in the book of Acts, they're kind of cool with angels. Like he shows up to, in, in the book of Acts uh, to, to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he's like, oh, hi, angel. And the angel's saying, oh, I'm going to send Peter to you now. Oh, thank you. You know, he's not hiding or anything. It's just really, I guess, different. But in the Old Testament, New, in the early part of the New Testament, it scares people to death because they're so bright and so shiny. And uh, we see this, and it actually shows up in the, in the New Testament and Old Testament. I'll just show you one reference to this. The Lord, an angel of the Lord goes to Philip and says, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. This was necessary. God had to get to Philip now because Philip had to start running into the wilderness. This is an amazing thing because he says, okay, you know, he puts on his keds and off he goes. In the middle of the wilderness, he intersects the eunuch's chariot. So he had, it can't be, I can't pray about it and put out a fleece and decide. You got to get going. You know, get your running shoes on and go, go, go. Because you've got to intersect this guy. He's in movement, right? So we have to get you moving. So the angel appears to him and he goes. Here's the weird thing. Angels and, and, and uh, physical visions of Jesus Christ still appear today. But a lot of them, this is very interesting, is uh, coming to the Muslims. There's a, I'm, I'm urging you, if you've got the time, to Google this. Google this, the, this phrase, when Muslims dream of Jesus. It's an article written by Darren Carlson, and it shows up in the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it's based on a lot of interviews that were done in these refugee camps and things. A lot of Muslims coming, there's a lot of Christian organizations there. They're finding out a lot of the Muslims are having visitations by angels and Jesus himself, and they're getting saved by it. And uh, the, the theory that he has is because all of Islam is based on a visitation of an angel. You know, that's how Muhammad supposedly got the whole religion. They're very open to the idea that angels can visit and talk to him. Because they're open to it, God uses this in order to get to them. Uh, but there's a lot of stories in there. One of my favorite is the story of a, of a boat. You know, these refugee boats are just overloaded. I've never seen them. There's like people hanging on. and They're trying to get out, you know. And so this overloaded boat, it was going to Turkey. And somewhere in the water, this seven-year-old girl disappears. They don't know where the families look around for her. And she was kind of by the edge, and now she's gone. 
and they call, they shout, and everybody's, you know, looking best they can on this crowded boat for it. There's, there's nothing. And so they're, you know, obviously weeping because they've lost their little girl. They get to the other side, and everybody gets out of the boat. Uh, and as everybody's clearing out, they see their little girl sitting in the back. Like, wait, like she couldn't have gotten through the mass of humanity to get there, right? And they go running up to her, oh, you're here, you're here. You know, what happened? And she says, I fell out of the boat. Well, and, and the back of her was wet, but the front of her was dry. And they said, well, how did you fall out of the boat? How'd you get back in? He said, a man walked across the water, picked me up, and put me back in the boat. And I thought, okay, well, that's a fanciful tale. You know, we need to get this kid to the doctor or something. So they, they get out, and they, they have all kind of new missionary stands set up and stuff. They're trying to help people, you know, acclimate to their new, their new uh, refugee camp. And there's a Christian there who had a fire going. And they thought, let's go there because we can get her dry. So they went there, and they said, thank you for your kindness, sir. And the guy said, yes, uh, I, I would like to tell you about my God. Have you ever heard about the, of the God who walks on water? And they're like, why would, no, we've never heard of this. Who is this God, you know? And he opens up the Bible and he starts telling them about the story of the time Jesus walked on the water to the disciples. And he said later, because this guy interviewed him, in my life I have never used that ever, that story. I mean, he knows the story. We all know the story. He said, but I've never used it as a form of evangelism. I've never done that. But for some reason he felt led to ask them if they wanted that scripture. They all became Christian that moment, you know, because they knew the God who walked on water had actually saved their daughter. So some really cool stuff like that's going on all across the world. So if you've got time, there's some neat stories there. Okay, number six, providence or coincidence. Now, not every coincidence is from God, okay? Doesn't always, you know, mean that it is, but it might be. And sometimes we have things that happen in our lives that we go, well, that was lucky, and maybe it wasn't lucky at all. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. We see this back at the burning bush again uh, in Exodus. Watch, Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it didn't burn up. Now, bushes burning in the wilderness are not that unusual. It's hot there. It's dry there. You know, things happen. Fires spontaneously happen. The sun's out there. And so when he's, t- you know, he's watching his sheep and he comes over, he sees a burning bush. It's no big deal. You know, he looks at it, makes sure it's not approaching or something. But okay. But every time he looks over, it's still there. Now, that's unusual. It's unusual that the bush would be on fire and not burn up. And so after a while, Moses watches enough. He says, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why is that bush not burning up? So he was curious enough to go over to see it. And when he gets there, God speaks to him. It's like God literally lit up a neon sign. Moses, come here, come here, come here. It took him a while to go, maybe I should go over there. He goes over there. But if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't been curious about this strange event that happened in his life, he would have missed out on speaking to God. I mean, I imagine God would have moved the bush closer, but, you know, eventually come up on him somehow. But this is the thing. Sometimes these things happen in our lives, and and we think, well, that was lucky. Maybe it wasn't lucky at all. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. He's trying to bring your attention to him because he has a message for you. And we know this scripture, and we sometimes don't think of it this way, but it really is. Uh, In Romans 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose as he can get all things working together. And, and sometimes we just miss God's hand in our life. I love the way my father put it once. He said, God's hands are always moving in our lives, but every now and then he lets them linger long enough that we catch a glimpse, you know? And at that moment, we have to understand he slowed down for a purpose to maybe, maybe get our attention and so we can get that. So anyway, so that's, that's the ways God can speak to us, I believe. There are other ways people talk about that I can find no scripture basis for them. Okay, I want to talk quickly about where Revelation goes wrong. Because there's three parts to this, and sometimes people really in the spirit who are very righteous and honestly seeking God, 
believe they have a message from God and they tell somebody and it's entirely wrong. What happened? Are, are they just false prophets? We should stone them or we could cast them out of our lives, whatever. Uh, is God sometimes changing his mind? What's going on? There are three parts to all this. First thing is revelation. That's what comes from God through some means, through scripture, through a voice, through angels, whatever. It's revelation that comes to you, okay? The second part is interpretation. And usually if God's giving you a heavenly thought and you're trying to understand it with your earthly mind, there's a gap. You know, it's like there's all this stuff that he has to say and we can understand this much of it. Like I don't know if you've ever had to teach a, a elementary school class or something like that. You know, and it's not that you have to dumb it down, but you have to find unique ways of describing it to the, where, the, where the child mind can pick it up. It's also true, by the way, when we go to foreign countries. Uh, I wrote to Victoria once about when, they, when we, were, she, we were engaged and we were waiting for her to come over from Ukraine. And I had a picture of Emily. Uh, we had this uh, Franklin stove in the, in the place we had. And she was, had a stick in the stove. Well, she had a marshmallow on the stick. And I had that picture. Victoria said, what's that? What's she doing? Why would you let your child play with fire? <laughs> well, that's me. I do that. But um, I said, she's cooking a marshmallow. She said, what's a marshmallow? She'd never seen one. Now, you think about that for a minute. How would you describe a marshmallow to someone who'd never seen it? And I had this whole paragraph trying to explain what a marshmallow was, right? But it wasn't until she got here and actually could touch the marshmallow. Oh, this is a marshmallow. You know, these s'mores are good. You know, we, we, sometimes it's very difficult. And you can imagine what God's like. You know, he's got all this knowledge and everything else. And I need you to do this. And why? I can't tell you why. Just do it. You know, so this interpretation is something that we really need to pray for and pray about. Because the revelation, we get so excited about revelation, we you know, jump over the interpretation part, but that's a really critical component because without the interpretation, your application is going to be all wrong. God said this, it must mean that. No, did you listen to the interpretation? It doesn't mean that. And, and if we get this interpretation wrong, our application is going to be wrong. And very well-meaning people have said in this church, and I'll include myself in that, that God spoke and he said this and he did not. We've got to be careful, you know. I also, by the way, caution you, never use the word, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> unless your name's Isaiah. Never use that. You know, it's like, I think, I sense in my spirit, I believe God might be saying, we need a couch, it's because we, you know, we get this stuff wrong. And I'm going to show you, and this is going to um, kind of blow some people away, but I'm going to show you in the New Testament where a prophet in the book of Acts gets it wrong. And he really does. Uh, before, though, let me just point out that uh, two of the three of these are kind of on us. One's God. He can help with this, but we need to get the interpretation right. We get the application right. For those of you who like math, 66.6% is on us. That's a scary, scary number, right? Anyway, but okay, so getting it wrong. We're going to book it back. So there's this guy named Agabus, and he's a well-known, he kind of has a gift of prophecy. He's a Christian in the new church. And so they were staying there for a while, and Agabus comes down. He takes Paul's belt. That's not like what we wear, right? The, the belts they had that would wrap around. Okay, takes Bob, Paul's belt. He binds his feet and hands with it, and he says this, thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Lord. He's speaking for God now. This is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. This is going to happen. If you go, Paul, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Jews, are going to bind you and hand you over to the Romans. And they're going to kill you. So when everybody hears that, they know this guy is prophetic, they all were just saying, you can't go to Jerusalem then, Paul. And they start telling them, the application here is clearly warning you stay away from Jerusalem. The problem is that Paul also has a, has a level of communication with the Holy Spirit. And Paul knows what's going to happen, and he says, I don't care. Because Paul says in one of his letters, I'm actually torn here. Part of me just wants to go die and be with the Lord. 
And part of me says, if you need me to still work here, I'll still work here. Whatever you want. You know, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. So he's ready. If we ever get through our minds that death is not the worst thing that can happen to us, we'll start to understand God's perspective better. Some of you are as old as me. Do you remember Chuck Knoll, coach, right? When, back in the day, Chuck Knoll was the, was the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He had, a, he had an interesting saying. Because that was back in the day before these guys made billions of dollars playing the game. And so they would play football for a while, and then they'd have to retire from football and get a real job. Right? And he had a saying he used to tell them. He says, it's time to get on with your life's work. Football is not your life's work. You need to go on with your real life's work now. And that's what he, when he cut them off the team because they're too old, that's what he tell them. Hey, you know what? Love you playing for us, but you've lost the edge. It's time for you to get on with your life's work. Our life's work isn't just here. <laughs> I understand. If we understand that we're going to get on with our life's work, it's going to be a lot better there, we could kind of start seeing what Paul sees. And Paul says this. He said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we remain silent except to say the Lord's will be done. Now, again, I'm going to flash back to the first sermon in this series. If that were Isaiah talking to Paul, would Paul go to Jerusalem? No way. That being direct disobedient to the word of the Lord, right? The New Testament prophecy is different. And so he says, I hear you, but I'm not going to not go to Jerusalem. So um, going on, I'm going to take a look at the three elements of this prophecy. First of all, the Jews, the Jerusalem Jews, are going to bind Paul. That's what he says. The Jews are going to hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans are going to kill him. Same thing that happened to Jesus, really. Very same pattern. Jesus was taken by, you know, the, the Romans were there, but there was, he was arrested by the high priest. And they bound him and they took him to the Romans and hand him over. And he says, same thing's going to happen to you, Paul. That's what he says. Okay, now, here's what actually happens. And it's not that. So the Jews from Asia, not from Jerusalem, stirred up the whole crowd in Jerusalem. And they seized him saying, this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against our people. And he brought Greeks into the temple. He must die. Right? So we've got to kill this guy. And the city was aroused and the people all rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. So he was preaching in the temple. They grabbed him. They pulled him out. And I've had some bad days at Spirit Chapel. But so far, I've never been rushed by the crowd and yanked out to be killed. Because that's what they're going to do. They were trying to kill him. They weren't handing him over to anybody. They were doing it themselves. They were going to beat him to death. But word came to the tribune of the cohort that was stationed there. And immediately, he took soldiers and ran to restore order. And as soon as the soldiers shut up, they stopped. They let him go. So what's happening is Rome's, Rome's actually rushing in to save him. Now, they all say, this is the trouble, this is the trouble. So he arrests him. He does bind him. But the Romans bind him, not the Jews. And because of the uproar, he ordered to be brought into the barracks. But when he gets to the steps, the presence of the mob was so great, they have to pick him up and carry him. Listen, Rome saved his life. Rome saved his life. They're trying to kill him. And Rome saved his life. And then when he gets inside, the tribune directed that he was to be brought into the barracks for questioning. He was ordered to be flogged. They're, they're the inquisitors. We're going to ask you questions while we beat you. You know, we'll get the answer out of you. We'll beat the answer out of you. But when they tied him up, Paul says the centurion who was standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? I haven't had a trial and you're getting ready to flog me. And the cent when the centurion heard that, he went running to the tribune and said, what are you doing? This man's a Roman citizen. They didn't know that. They thought he was just a Jew. But Paul was born a Roman citizen. So he was a Roman citizen. Actually, the reality is they should have been taking the Jews because they were just Jews. But he was actually a Jewish Roman citizen. So he had, he had stature in, in the Roman government and uh, they had completely ignored it. And the tribune came up 
And he asked him, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. And immediately those who were about to quote-unquote examine him, that was meaning to beat him until he told us what he wanted him to tell you, drew back from him. And the tribune was also afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which by law he should have never done. Since he wanted to find out what Paul was being accused of by the Jews, the next day he released him. Okay, so let me walk through what really happens. The Jews try to kill Paul. The Romans save him. They, the Romans did bind him, but then they release him. Now, some Christians say, well, yeah, but later the Romans kill Paul. Yeah, we think. We actually don't know what happens to Paul. You know he lives through the entire book of Acts. He never dies in the Bible. We never see his death. We never see Peter's death either. Now, now early tr- church tradition has it that Paul was beheaded in Rome, not in Jerusalem. And, you know, early tradition has that Peter was crucified upside down. You've probably heard that story. But we don't have biblical evidence of that. My point is, this prophecy completely missed. There were some elements of it that were true. I believe he had revelation from the Lord, but his interpretation was off. And, oh boy, he missed the application by a mile because Paul knew he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to go. The Holy Spirit told me to go there. He didn't tell me that something bad wasn't going to happen to me. He told me, I need you there. And so Paul was going to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. So now that I talked about Agabus getting it wrong in the book of Acts, just to let you know, because some of you I know, kind of, we, we kind of try to reach out to prophecy and have God's revelation, and sometimes we've gotten some things wrong. We don't need to stone any of you, because in the New Testament, sometimes we do. That's why we need to have groups of people work together to make sure the interpretation's correct. That's where we're going to get together when we start the small group on this later. But I want to talk about the time that I got it wrong. And it happened actually last year. So, and most of you know this story. I'm going to go through this. But um, I, w- I believe strongly this church needs its own building. We've, thought, we've been talking about that for an entire year now. And the, and the reason why we need a building is we need everybody on one roof, preferably without the kids above us shaking the screen as they play. So <laughs> that'd be nice too. Uh, so I've been saying for some time we need to have it. I know we're a small church, but yet I still think we need, you know, we have all the problems of a big church because we cross all generations. And so we've been praying for some time about it, and there aren't very many buildings available in the entire Elizabeth Township, right? This is one of them. And so I've been praying about this for a year, uh, over a year. I've been walking around there with my prayer partner. You can see in the distance there. Uh, and, you know, I've been praying and praying and praying and praying. And, and nothing was happening, right? And time was passing and I don't know what's going on. And I tried everything. I mean, I tried every uh, theological trick in the book. Right? I was trying to, just trying to, I marched around it every day for seven days. I did. I waiting for the walls to fall down. I don't know what. There was no trumpet sounds. Nothing happened. Uh, you know, I prayed different prayers. I claimed it. I begged. I did everything you can imagine. You know, nothing was happening. And so um, I thought, okay, I'm going to pray again, and I don't even know what to pray for. Ever been there? You've been praying for something for so long. It's like, God, I know you must be tired of hearing me pray for this because I'm tired of praying about it. You know, it's just I'm still praying. It's just wearing me out. And I'm walking up to, and I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know. I, I, need, I need to pray something new, but I don't know what that is. And as I stepped up to put my hands on the door and pray for it, I felt that inner voice tell me, pray my words. And I stepped back because I thought, well, that's something I haven't tried. I could pray scripture, you know. I could pray scripture on this. That's a, it's, it's, it's exciting because it's new, right? It's something I have never tried. So I could do that. And I thought, but what scripture? You know, there's a lot of prayers that came to mind. Prayer of Jabez, which is about expanding your territory. And there's all these great prayers. And I'm like, I don't know what to pray. And I'm kind of going through it, you know. And I think, well, I'm standing in front of, here's a picture of my, my prayer partner with me. Uh, I'm standing in front of a locked door, right? And so I'm thinking, well, what scriptures are there about doors, locked and otherwise? You know, what's, 
what's, uh, what, what kind of scripture is that. And so I picked up my phone, you know, because you can Google more than just cats. And I said, you know, scripture about doors. And a bunch of them come up, you know, I'm looking, I'm scrolling through them. And I'm scrolling, uh, Psalms, that's probably a good one. You know, I see one there and there's one in Deuteronomy. Oh, that's not bad. And then I see one in Revelation. And I skip right by that because Revelation scares me. That's a creepy thing. I don't want to talk about Revelation. And then I felt like, no, that's the verse you need. You need the book, you need the Revelation one. So I kind of, with fear and trembling, scroll back down. And I click on the Revelation verse, and I put my hands on that door, and I prayed this: Revelations three, seven, eleven. He who is holy, he who is true, says this: I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay. So I'm like, wow. And I actually got emotional. I actually took, every time something like this happens, I weep like a little baby. And as I'm kind of crying, I think I can't wait home to go home and tell Victoria this amazing thing to happen. Here's what's really weird. On the way home, I get a phone call announcing to me that the Boston Presbyterian Church down there in Boston is closing. And I was being called by the caretaker who was saying, anything you guys want out of here, you can take because we're going to shutter the doors and that's it. So it's official now. And so I thought, well, that's weird. Within like an hour of praying that prayer, I get this thing popping up, right? And so I think, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. So I get home and tell Victoria all this, but I told him, and let's go take a look at the Boston church. So we get there, and you all know what happens. We get there, and we look at it, and we go, oh, my gosh, this church is almost perfect. As it is, it's just there's no parking. <laughs> just that, you know. <laughs> well, it's a walk a mile to get there. But other than that, it's perfect. And um, the guy who I was talking to kept hinting, you know, I think Presbyterian might give this to you. I thought, oh, Presbyterian will never give it to us, you know. And he said, they've given, they've given churches away to people before. I thought, well, giving's good. I can afford giving. And so I thought, well, this probably won't work, but let me call Presbyterian just to see. And the other thing is we were coming up on our lease, which was up in November, and I, this was like an early part of the fall. And so I thought, well, I'd have to make a decision before my lease is up, and that's just crazy. So I called Presbyterian to my Stunned amazement, they said, you're exactly the kind of people we would like to see in here. You're an established church. You already have your congregation. We would like to see a house of worship there. We know a Presbyterian church isn't going to move in here. That sounds really doable to me. And then I threw out that, well, I don't know, because I have to make a decision by November. She said, that's fine. We have to make a decision by then, because I don't want to have to pay for the insurance for this thing in the winter. I thought, wow, this is an open door from the Lord. There's no question this is an open door. And by the way, I think it was an open door from the Lord. That he has multiple purposes. And so you know the story because a lot of you came and visited it and we looked at it and we loved it and we loved the people and everything seemed to be going great. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of all this, we were like, we're on a fast track to get this thing. We were thinking we're going to have our candlelight service there. It was that fast. All of a sudden, a pastor behind the scenes picks up his phone, calls Presbytery and tells him you can't give this to them. And he lied about us. He said, they'll steal all my people. You'll be closing this church next. And that scared Presbytery. And all of a sudden, they wouldn't have any conversations with us hardly at all. I mean, then when we did have conversations, I could tell they're lying to me. You know, all of a sudden, it's like, no, nah, we're not going to do it. We're not gonna. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter if they had it through the winter. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if a house of worship takes the place. Everything changed. Everything changed. And I was so angry when I found out what had happened. I mean, it's still, if I think about it too long, we'll still get angry that somebody would do that. Because I know this pastor, and he lied about us. And he didn't care. You know, he's, I know he's operating out of fear or whatever, but it still really, really bothered me, right? And I was so angry. It took me a while to just get to the point I could forgive him, you know, because it was like, you stole this from my church, you know. Was, what did you do to us? Uh, and then it would be some time later, 
before I went back kind of a little bit befuddled, God, did you give me a promise or not? And I went, I took a look at the prophecy because it's very interesting because he gave us a prophetic word through the scripture. And this is the, these are the points of the prophecy. First of all, this will happen while we're yet a small church, which is actually a really important point because the world tells you you don't do it this way. You build us up. We need like two services with 80 people and then we can go, you know, do that. Banks, I spoke to a banker. He said, yeah, banks aren't going to give you any money. It doesn't matter how long you've been around. They're not going to give you any money. You would need to really show growth and really show money and really show a lot of things. So you have to build yourself up to the point where you need that. No one's going to believe you need that. So, you, you know, forget it. But God's saying, no, while you are yet a small church, because I've seen you, I know you're small and have little power. Well, that describes us, right? I know my bank account. I'm little and I have little power. I know who we are. I'm okay with that. And so he said, I'm going to give it to you then. And then he says, he will put an open door before us. It's not you. You're not going to manipulate things. You're not going to make this happen. You're going to be hands off. God's going to cause everything to happen to make this work. Now, I believe that kind of fits the first two of where we're going, right? And then he says, someone's going to try to close the door. Hey, that's three out of four. That's three out of four. Someone try to close the door, and they won't be able to. But he was. He succeeded. One man closed the door, which means this can't be our church. Because God only gave us a prophecy. He described the church we're going to get. They're going to try to close the door, but they won't be able to. Therefore, this cannot be our church. Take one last look, folks. Take a heavy sigh, because I still love that sanctuary. But it's not ours. I don't know what God's going to do with it. That's his. He's going to do whatever he wants with it. This can't be our church because it doesn't fit the description. A man stopped it. So then, of course, I go back to the building where I prayed the prayer to begin with. Okay? So I guess I'm saying I believe the door's been opened by God, and I believe people are trying to shut it. Okay? That shouldn't surprise us. That's what the prophecy says. He said, I'm going to open a door for you, and it was all God. I had nothing to do with this, believe me. Uh, and they're going to try to close it. They're trying. That's absolutely true. They're going to try to close it. If they succeed, this isn't our church either. It's just that simple. I don't know what God's doing, but if they succeed, this isn't our church either. If they don't succeed, then we'll know it's a church because they tried to stop it and they couldn't. Right? God's kind of telling us that by this prophetic word. Maybe if I'd gone to the Deuteronomy one, it wouldn't have said this. But this one says they're going to try to stop it. They're going to try to shut the door, but it, won't, it will not succeed. And that's how you know it's yours. And you can walk into it with thanksgiving, right? So let me just close. I have a real quick little part of a, of a hymn. This is a hymn of one of my favorite old hymns. Um, and I love it. In fact, when I grew up, people thought this hymn's title was in the Bible. The title of this hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And some of you may have heard that. And people would say that. Well, God moves in a mysterious way. People thought that was in the Bible. My dad, when people would ask him where he was, he says, the second book of Hezekiah. They'd always say that. It was his stock answer. There is no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. But it sounds like there is. And so he always says, that's the second book of Hezekiah, I think the third chapter. He would always like, play with them. That's not in the Bible. But I used to always, when I buy a new Bible, I'd sit there and write this whole thing in there so I could say, what's well, in my Bible? Because I just love, love, love this poem. I'm going to give you the last couple stanzas of it. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break on blessings, in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain.
So we have to trust God on this, right? We have to say, okay, if you gave us a passage that we can hold on to and a promise that we can cling to, the promise has to be true. You cannot lie. But we can't misapply it. It may be true there. It may not. But we'll know by what happens because our God's hand is moving. And it's exciting because he says, I've got a building for you. I'm going to open a door and no one's going to be able to shut it. And when I do it, you're going to walk in knowing I did this for you. It's going to be a miracle. And it's like, okay, that sounds like a place I want to be. And I've said this many, many times. If God wants us to have it, nothing's going to stop it. If God doesn't want us to have it, I don't want it. I want to walk where God leaves. The promised land without the promise is just dirt. I want to walk in his promised land. And I'm going to end with one scripture here. And I love this scripture. Once God has spoken and twice I've heard it. It's like he spoke once and it echoed in my head. It was one of those loud voice moments. Power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you pay each man according to what he has done. We will continue to be the small church of little power, but we will continue to never deny his name. We will lift up the name of Jesus and we'll continue to do what we do. And we know that God will reward each of us according to what we've done. Would you please pray with me?